So this is something I trust that we've all learned, and we learned it from a very young age. There is a list of things we shouldn't touch because they could be very harmful or dangerous to us. And that list gets longer as we go, right? By now, I trust that all of us know you shouldn't touch power lines. Louis the lightning bug uh, educated us on that, if you're old enough to remember. You don't touch power lines, you don't touch fire, you don't touch a hot stove. Uh, most of us, I'm sure, have figured out you're not supposed to touch the plate at the Mexican restaurant when they first bring it to the table. But if you're like me, you still do this thing. You just kind of, because you just, I just can't help myself. I want to know, like, how bad it really is. Don't reach into a thorn bush. Don't, don't pick up a snake. Be careful around broken glass. Right, there are just things that we learn or taught not to touch because they have a great potential for harm. It'll cut us, it'll burn us, or worse. Well, today in Exodus 19, we come to a peculiar place in the Scripture where God forbids His people to touch something. And it becomes for them a matter of life and death. Now, I'm going to go ahead and spoil this for us before we get into the text as to what makes this such a peculiar command. Because what God is forbidding them to touch is something that we would not consider dangerous or especially harmful, at least not on the surface. God tells them not to touch a mountain. The Lord says you shall not go up on or even touch the border of this mountain, Mount Sinai, or else you will die. Now, I know on the surface that seems obscure to us, maybe even arbitrary and strange, but it was entirely clear to the people as God spoke to them. And so hopefully we'll see it a little more clearly also as we inspect it uh, in, a little bit, in a little better detail. So, y'all, we're going to try and, and survey, for the most part, Exodus 19 today. This is where the Lord, who has rescued his people out of Egypt, has now brought them to Mount Sinai. And it was on this mountain, uh, we'll see this, I guess, after Easter in the next chapter, chapter 20. This is where God delivers to Moses the Ten Commandments, here from this very mountain. So we're dealing with one of the most significant moments, not only in the Bible, but in all of human history, right here. And y'all, it begins, when, when God leads the people to Sinai, this is actually a terrific fulfillment of one of God's promises that he made to Moses in the beginning of Exodus. When God first appeared to Moses at the burning bush, that was right here at the same mountain. And the Lord promised that after I rescue my people Israel from slavery, I'm going to bring you all back here to this very spot where you will worship me. And it's right here in Exodus 19 as God brings them back in fulfillment of the promise that he establishes for his people the nature of his covenant with them. And so we see it in Exodus 19. Look with me beginning in verse 3. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now that is an amazing and, and perhaps sometimes overlooked scripture, what we just read. It's really amazing on many levels also. And I just want to kind of draw a few things out for us in this paragraph. As God speaks, y'all, for one thing, the words of God here in that paragraph should really reshape our typical view of religion and how religion operates. See, for most people around the world, including maybe for some of us, religion functions like this. There is a divine law that we are expected and required to keep. We may call it law or commandments. We may call it a path or pillars. But there is something God gives to people with the expectation that they will do it. And to the degree that we keep the law, if we do it well enough, then perhaps we will achieve God's standards and earn His acceptance. Meaning, you may enter into God's favor and blessing only after you've proven yourself worthy, only after you've kept the rules. That's our perception of religion for the most part. But you notice that's not how the God of the Bible orders things. The one true God does not operate like that. You see it again in verse 4, what the Lord says. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's the first thing he says concerning his relationship with Israel. And y'all, those are words of pure and unmerited grace. Which means the relationship between God and His people is not established on what they do for Him, but on what He has done for them. The Lord initiates the relationship on the grounds of His own love and mercy and His promises, not on the grounds of Israel's worthiness. And God will remind them of that as they go. I did not choose you because you were great in number or because you were righteous of your own making. I set my love upon you and I rescued you out of slavery. It's God's achievement that makes them His people. It's not theirs. It's nothing they've done or that they could earn. And so in light of rescuing and redeeming grace, God now calls the people into covenant keeping. He says, if you'll obey my voice, if you'll have uh, faithfulness and fidelity to me, if you'll keep the covenant which I've established. That's the next step. It's only after saving mercy that then God sets the terms of his covenant. He says, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, those are the terms, then the blessings, then the blessed outcomes. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to me. Um, Y'all, I'm not sure if we're aware of this, but this is not just interesting Old Testament kind of language here. This is, uh, in the New Testament, almost verbatim, we're given this very same idea by the Apostle Peter. Listen to what Peter says when he speaks to us as the Christian church from 1 Peter chapter 2. He's speaking about us now. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his 
marvelous light. If you're familiar with 1 Peter, he goes in great detail uh, right around these uh, that scripture in 1 Peter 1 and 2, speaking of Christians as God's obedient children, that we are called to live holy lives according to the Holy One who has called us, almost word for word, what we just read in Exodus 19. And y'all, I make that connection for us, again, not because it's interesting, this is not trivia, It's meant to show us that this is who God has always been. Not one way in the Old Testament, but a different way somehow in the New. As if God changed, or as if His way of of relating to people has somehow become less judgmental and more merciful over time. No, the connection for us is meant to be clear. That the way God operates here in Exodus 19 is perfectly congruent with who He still is to us now today. Think about what's happening with the people of Israel and consider it in the context of our own Christian belief and experience. We're saying something about God here. God is saying something about Himself. That the Lord of His own free grace loves and chooses and calls and saves His people. And having brought them to Himself, He now calls them to live as holy and obedient people for His glory in the world with all the promises and the blessings that accompany His covenant faithfulness. That ought to sound familiar because that's what we celebrate in the gospel. God's grace brings us in and by His grace and for His glory we live now as His children, His people in the world. And so the foundation in Exodus 19 should not sound all that foreign to us. But it's with this foundation that I hope it will help us to better understand what happens next. Because here's where it gets perhaps a little more peculiar and strange to us. The next thing that the Lord says to Moses is this. I want you to have all the people consecrate themselves. Meaning, set yourselves apart and prepare yourselves for uh, worship and service to God. God even goes so far as to say, wash your clothes and make them clean. As a representation of your purity before me, and draw the people, Moses, to Mount Sinai. Bring them to the foot of the mountain. But then comes God's warning. He says to the people, no one may come up on the mountain, or even touch the borders of it, or else they will surely die. And we see now the outworking of this. This is Exodus 19. Look at verse 16 with me. After the warning, don't touch it or you'll die, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, what is this all about? Y'all, I'm I'm always drawn uh, to the connection that I I make with the Wizard of Oz. 
is this a Wizard of Oz situation? Remember when Dorothy and her friends, they enter into the wizard's chamber, and they're met with what? Smoke and fire and a great booming voice intended to terrify them and weaken their defenses when in reality it's just a guy behind a curtain pulling levers, right? It, it, what is God up to here at Mount Sinai? Is he just making a big show in order to produce fear and trembling in the people? No. Y'all, what, what's happening on Mount Sinai is a representation of who God is in His holiness, in His power, and His majesty. God is manifesting or showing Himself to the people in a way that can be felt in their chests. This is the greatness of the Lord in contrast to the smallness and the weakness of man. And y'all, it's obvious to everybody in Israel as they stand beneath this mountain that God is unlike anything else and anyone else. He is truly other. He's different than them. God is not an exalted man. God is something far and above beyond their reckoning. And they're meant to respect Him for His greatness. All they can do is tremble. And so when we sang holy, holy, holy a moment ago, we're singing a song that reflects this attitude. Only thou art worthy. There is none beside thee. We recognize that God is different than us. He is supreme in every way. And so the command comes down to them as they witness the smoke and the flame and the thunder and the lightning. Don't touch. Don't come close. Keep your distance. But still we might ask why. Because we, we just talked about how God is merciful. Of how God desired to bring people to Himself and now He's pushing them back away it seems. Why is God saying keep a distance? And y'all this is a bigger picture idea that's taught throughout the Scripture not only here. But it's important for us to reckon with. Sinful man cannot presume upon a holy God. Sinful man cannot presume upon a holy God. We already saw this in, to, to a, in, in a sense a lesser degree because it only involved Moses. But back in Exodus 3, that all-famous story of Moses encountering God at the burning bush, the very first thing the Lord speaks to Moses as Moses draws near, do you remember what he says? He says, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. And God's communication to Moses in that moment is very clear. You're not able to come close unless I make provision for you to enter in. And this is something, y'all, that, that ought to uh, uh, serve as a foundational element of our understanding of God. That God in His holiness, the Scripture says, is like a consuming fire. God in His holiness is pure, and therefore He makes no allowance for the corruption of sin. There is no sin in God, and He takes no sin to Himself. And so God in His holiness, God in His righteousness, we understand that He alone stands as the perfect divine judge over all the earth against all unrighteousness. And there is no confusion between the two. There is no gray areas for God. It is pure black and white. 
And y'all, if we understand the nature of God, these things are essential to Him, meaning that there's no sense in which God could become less holy or less righteous than He is. He is perfect in every way. And so what we're seeing in Exodus 19, God is illustrating His holiness, His righteousness, His greatness, His majesty in a way that the people can see and understand for themselves. That they might get the picture. And so would we. For a sinner like me, to casually approach a holy God is like walking directly into the smoke and the flame. I don't stand a chance. I don't belong. And so it's scriptures like this, difficult as they may be for us, we have to come to these places of reckoning with who God really is. Because we're tempted always to bring Him down to our own level and understand Him as we would understand ourselves. But God does not make allowance for that. And so if it's confusing for us to speak of God in these terms, because He seems like, you know, this is, this is the kind of stuff that people get upset about, right? God's too judgmental. God's too this or that, right? I, I prefer Jesus because Jesus is so merciful. The God of the Old Testament somehow is different. And so for us, if this is a point of confusion, it's something that we come to and ask legitimately, okay, who really do we understand God to be? Is God merciful or is he not? Is he exacting? Which is it? Is God kind-hearted or is he terrifying? Which is it? And when we come to the scripture, we recognize that there is no such contradiction as if God could only be one or the other. But how could God say, I've brought you to myself, and then a few verses later say, stand back, don't come close or you'll die. Well, y'all, this is, this is an opportunity for us to open our hearts, I hope, op open our minds to who God is without contradiction. Y'all, there's, there's never a contradiction in the nature and character of God. He is who he is. He said it to, to Moses, I am who I am. So who is he? Y'all, in, in this case, okay, Exodus 19, let's deal in particulars. Smoke and flame and thunder and lightning. Those are things that arouse fear and trembling and trepidation. And when we come to smoke and flame and thunder and lightning, we say, don't touch, don't get close, right? Because of the threat of harm. Therefore, those things are bad. That's an easy conclusion to make. And if we associate those things with God in this case, then God's threat toward us is something malicious. It's bad, right? There must be badness in God in that case. And this is where we come correct to what the Scripture tells us about the nature of God. Thunder, lightning, smoke, and thunder, these illustrations of His holiness, y'all, these are not elements of badness in God, but pure goodness. The badness is in us. The sin and corruption are in me. And so the threat of God's holiness comes because of His absolute goodness, not because there's any malice in the heart of God. The threat is because he's good and I'm not. And y'all, if it helps us to bring this down maybe to, to eye level a little bit. If a guilty criminal is afraid of a judge, that fear is warranted because the judge is good, not because she's bad. A bad judge, a corrupt judge, would be no threat to a guilty criminal. He has a chance to get off. But a good judge, who will uphold rightness and justice, 
that judge is a threat to someone who knows they're guilty, right? The goodness of the judge is a threat to the guilt of the criminal. And so we're meant to see this as working in harmony, that God's holiness, which comes to the people as very fearful and threatening, is not a, um, a contradiction to his mercy. No. His holiness is what reveals the people's need for his mercy. It's because he is holy and he does not tolerate sin that the people need him to be merciful and forgiving because they are sinners and so are we. Y'all, what's happening on the mountain here is a stark reminder to Israel and also to us. We cannot come to God on our own merits because ultimately we have no merit to bring that he would accept us. We have sin. We have rebellion. We have fallen short of his glory. And so if we are left to ourselves in this case, our sin will only result in alienation from God and destruction. That's why his holiness threatens us. It's because he's good and we're not. We're dismissed. All right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, we wouldn't dismiss like that, my goodness sake. Y'all, this say, today is Palm Sunday, all right, lest we forget. Today's a day of rejoicing. Today's a day of celebration, of welcoming Jesus Christ as he enters in. We're heralding good news, okay? It's not a bad news sermon. And the good news is that God has not left us to ourselves. God has not left us to our own devices, our own merits, or our own sins. No, God has sent us His Son. And as always, y'all, on Palm Sunday, we, we reflect together on the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem, what Evan spoke and taught our children so well a moment ago. We, we, con we consider what Jesus did as He entered in, and we think, okay, okay, where's Kyle going to go with this? Because Jesus on the donkey does not relate at all to God smoking on the mountain. But maybe, maybe it does. Maybe a little better than, than we recognize at first glance. I want to try to make the connection here the best I can. And I hope it will be a connection for us that brings great relief and great joy. And so look with me at, at Matthew 21. What Evan read for us a moment ago, we're going to read again together. I'm just going to read these 11 verses here all at once. And we'll give a, a brief time of reflection here. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they, Jesus and his disciples, had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and Jesus sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of Jesus and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I'm going to assume that we know how all of this plays out over the course of the week. Um, but right here in, on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem to great fanfare. But moreover, he enters the city with great purpose. This is the final week of his life, which will culminate in his death on the cross and his burial and then his glorious resurrection. And Jesus knows all of this. Jesus has planned for it. He knew it from the beginning. He's predicted it with his disciples. He's told them what is to come. He knows that this day, Palm Sunday, Jesus will be received as a king by some, but only a few days later on Friday, he'll be crucified as a criminal. He knows it. And what's more, Jesus knows what his death and his resurrection will achieve for the world, and so he does not blink. He enters right in. But as Evan mentioned, and something that always strikes us when we come to this account in the Scripture, it's the way in which Jesus enters Jerusalem. Because to this point, Jesus has had a ministry marked by astounding miracles and even more astounding claims. Jesus has made it abundantly clear that He has not only come from God, but that He is, in fact, God. God in the flesh. God come down to save us. And what the Scripture says, and Jesus affirms, He is called the Holy and Righteous One, the One who will judge the earth and receive all glory and authority forever and ever. That is this Jesus. And yet right here, on this most important day, Jesus comes to town uh, not even like Yankee Doodle, who came to town riding on a pony. He comes in on a donkey with a coat serving as a makeshift saddle. And here that, y'all, the Scripture is fulfilled. Jesus does this intentionally. Behold, your King is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey. As the people cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David, what they're saying is, Save us, Lord. Hosanna, save us, Son of David. Jesus receives their praise and their worship with astounding humility. A humility we would not expect, and frankly, we can't really reckon with. Jesus was the only man who ever lived who didn't actually need to be humble. There was nothing in him that required humility, no fault, no shortcoming. And yet he came to us as the most humble man we've ever known. And y'all, I want to consider, I hope, as we close, how this does connect for us between Exodus 19 and here in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We consider what we know in the Scripture to be true of God and how God relates to us. When we esteem the greatness and the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God, what is put on display in the smoke and the flame at Mount Sinai, consider this, that the God who is so great and glorious that no human eye can see Him. We now, in the person of Jesus Christ, see the Lord. John says we beheld His glory. We saw Him. 
The God who otherwise can't be seen and taken in. The God who is so pure and holy that we dare not touch or come too close. That same God has come near and become touchable in the person of Jesus Christ. Y'all consider how many times in the ministry of Jesus He brought people near and allowed them to touch Him or that He reached out His hands and touched them. It happens so regularly, we almost take it for granted. That Jesus, to my knowledge, y'all come correct me, Bible scholars, if you know, to my knowledge, Jesus never once said, keep your distance. Come no closer. He was touchable. The God who is surpassingly great in His magnitude has taken on flesh and blood and become as we are. And has stood shoulder to shoulder with you and me. And so what we understand God to be in all of His greatness and glory and effulgence in, in, in Exodus 19, we're seeing that very same God come to us in humility and touchability and nearness and eye contact. It doesn't make any sense to us that God would come in such a way, but that's what God has done in the sending of His Son. And ultimately we see this, that the God who stands forever as the perfect, holy, righteous, and divine judge who stands over and against all unrighteousness. That's the threat, remember, for us sinners. That very same God who is judge over all things has come down Himself to take our judgment on. He bore it Himself in our place so that we might have eternal life rather than death. Now, how do we make sense of all that? Y'all, it might, again, here's our temptation perhaps to say, okay, somewhere between the smoking mountain of Exodus 19 and the gentle, humble Savior of Matthew 21, somewhere in between, God must have changed. God must have loosened up His standards. God must have lowered His defenses against sin because something must have changed to allow this kind of closeness and and humility and mercy. But no, y'all, no. We don't want to miss what's happening right here. How is it that we find God in the person of Jesus Christ so relatable, so touchable, so humble, so merciful? Here's how. God in His holiness, the great, divine, righteous, holy one, makes no concessions to allow human beings to come up the mountain to Him. That's not how this works. God does not lower His holy standards so that we can come up. God brings sinners to Himself by coming down. It's Jesus Christ who comes down to us, who enters our darkness, our sinfulness, our hopelessness, and brings His divine light and grace to bear on those who could never make our way into His holy presence on our own. And y'all, this is God's purpose in sending His Holy Son to do for the world once and for all what the world could never do for itself. If left to ourselves, God will always in His holiness be untouchable, unapproachable, because He will not concede His perfection. He will not lower His standards. So rather than lowering His standards, He has lifted up His people. He has made us savable 
by granting us mercy in himself. And again, I appeal to the Apostle Peter on this. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Listen to how this unfolds here on our behalf. Peter says, Christ also died for sins once and for all. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit. Same language from Exodus chapter 19. We see it in 1 Peter 3. The only way we come to God is if God in his mercy brings us to himself. And that's what he's done once and for all in Jesus Christ. He's brought us to himself. On the cross, Jesus bears the full measure of our sin so that we now might come fully to God with no hindrance, with no gap, with no smoke and flame in between. We are fully accepted, fully loved, fully adopted because his grace has come down. It is the free grace of God that now allows you and me to know him as children to a father and to experience the blessings of his covenant love both now and forever. God has made us his people as a pure act of unmerited grace. May we receive Jesus Christ just as those did on the road that first Palm Sunday. Save us, O Lord, Son of David. Save us by your grace. Y'all, if you are inclined this morning to respond, if, if there's anything at all that God might be working in your life and in your heart that we can walk with you, we can pray with you and encourage you in, if we can talk with you about what it means to trust Jesus and become a believer, a, a Christian, we want to do that as a first importance. That is something that we, we wish and hope and pray that you would not leave lingering beyond this, this moment if God should lead you to respond. And so Evan and Aaron will be present right there at the back of the room near the doors. If during the prayer or during our final song, if you wish to pray and to speak with them, they'll be there present to respond with you. But y'all, I'm going to ask this uh, for all of us, that as we consider our place, we are sinners. We do not stand a chance in the presence of a holy God unless God himself in grace should intervene, should come down. But that is the good news of Palm Sunday, of Easter Sunday ahead, and of every day that we draw breath. God has loved us, and in his Son he has given himself for us. He did not beckon us up, but he himself came down. And so we respond with absolute joy and relief and gratitude and worship. And I want to invite us to do that as we pray. Father, this morning, uh, help us to see, Lord, what is, is unnatural perhaps for us to hold together. It's very difficult for us to see these things as being true both at the same time. But I pray, Lord, that we would, we would reckon with who you really are in all your perfection. Father God, you are just as holy right now as you ever were. You are perfect and righteous. Father, you are the one true and divine judge over all things. 
And so, Father, if, if those things about you are true, I pray, Lord, that we would tremble, that we would have, Lord, a very healthy and right um, amount uh, of, of fear, Father, knowing that we ourselves are not holy and righteous, that we on our own, we are not worthy of entering in, Lord, to your presence. Father, it is a threat to us to encounter the brightness and purity of your holiness. And Lord, that we would esteem you as, as truly great, Father, uh, and, and something beyond our reckoning, Father. We, we cannot uh, treat you uh, highly enough, Lord. We can't exalt you enough. You are great. And Lord, at the same time, we hold you as absolutely merciful and gracious and loving and kind, kind enough, Lord, that without forsaking any of your holiness, you would come down and bear our judgment on your own shoulders, that you would take our sin into your own heart, Jesus Christ, to put it away, to forgive us, to make us, Lord, not only acceptable to the Lord, but to bring us all the way into your very heart and to call us, Father, you call us your dear children, Father, as we, as we consider these wonderful, wonderful truths, Lord, let it be that we would see this covenant love you've given us. And Father, that our hearts would be uh, obedient children, keepers of your covenant, Lord, as you call us to be. That if we know how great a sin, Lord, we've been rescued out of, that if we understand the death that marked us, and Lord, that is no more because you have brought us life and light in your Son, Jesus Christ. If we see that and believe it, Lord, I pray that we would have as our greatest ambition in the world to obey you, to love you, to devote ourselves entirely to you. To be your people, Father, called by your name, proclaiming your excellencies, for you've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, thank you that all of these things are true all at once. And thank you, Lord, that, that um, if, if all we can do is just hold our hands open and ask, Lord, for you to help us to grasp it all, then, Lord, we're in a great position. Humble us in the presence of your greatness and glory, your goodness and mercy, your holiness and righteousness, Father. Thank you, Father, that you would delight to make yourself known and delight to call yourself our heavenly Father. And it's because of Jesus Christ these things are so. Let us turn to him fully and freely and joyfully in faith as we sing in his name. Amen.